Hello and welcome to Season 2, Episode 2 of the Crop It Like It's Hot podcast, brought to you by Arable Farming Magazine and the Crop Tech Show and hosted by me, Alice Dyer. As always, you can get one CQD point for tuning into this podcast by emailing your basis account number plus the name of this podcast to cpd at basis-reg.co.uk. In the second of this three-part series looking at nutrition, disease and pest control, with the start of the cereal disease season kicking off, in this episode we're going to delve down into how we can maximise yield this season without overspending as well as looking at some of the exciting new developments in non-chemical disease control for cereals, including some of the things our forefathers use, like wheat blends, and others being a bit more unusual. The England Woodland Creation Offer from DEFRA and the Forestry Commission is now available. If you're a farmer or land manager, you could receive over £10,000 for every hectare of woodland you create, and you don't need to take your best agricultural land out of use. Because when you plant trees, you plant the future. You plant a legacy which rewards you now and for generations to come. Put down roots. Visit gov.uk slash woodlandcreation. England only. Conditions apply. But first, here to give us a bit of an overview of the season so far and what we might expect moving forward is independent agronomist Patrick Stevenson, who walks crops all the way from Stamford to Berwick. Patrick, we've had quite a mild winter so far. Um, A lot of crops were sown early, making the most of the open autumn. So I'm just wondering if you can maybe start with just giving us a bit of an update on what you're seeing in the field at the moment and your views on which direction disease pressure might be heading this season. Yeah, thank you uh, for that. It's been a mild autumn, as you've said. I think we're about one degree above average for the length of the autumn coming into winter uh, and now starting with spring. And that's led to a a lot of uh, excessive growth, as I would call it, really, and the crops look really well. Um, The downside of this, both in winter barley terms and winter wheat terms, is that we've also created ourselves a nice um, disease uh, burden, which is in the crop at at the moment, and you can readily find septoria on wheat, uh, mildew on on barley. I'm not finding huge quantities of ring corn at watching barley currently, um, but uh, overall, uh, we've created a microclimate that is going to foster disease pretty well at the start of the season. Um, so uh, I, I think uh, with the commodity prices where they are and the potential, that we, we will have a full fungicide program requirement through the season. Okay. Yeah, that was kind of my next question with everything so expensive at the moment, wheat futures hitting their highest price on record you know, growers might be rethinking their input strategies. What What's your advice for maximising yield this season but not overspending? Yeah, that, that's uh, a, a really interesting one because obviously uh, when a manufacturer brings a fungicide to the marketplace, they're trying to get a, a, a recommendation through at what is the optimum level uh, for uh, product performance in the field, so the best efficacy you, you can get out of it. Uh, and also, you know, they're very conscious as well that to, to develop a, a fungicide is whatever, £350 million, that there has to be a profit margin in it as well. And I think many of us um, historically have, have tended to look at dose response curves and, and look towards the point where the curve starts to level off uh, as being the optimum time 
uh, or rate, should I say, for that French side. So uh, I, I think we're very conscious about that. Uh, the prices I'm currently seeing coming across my desks from the various uh, distributors out there is, yes, prices have gone up, but not ridiculously. They, they haven't done what fertilizer's done, which is basically double or uh, nearly two and a half times the price it was. Um, but th th they've remained within a reasonable level. Uh, and that's based upon the fact that wheat has risen considerably as well. So uh, I, I see that, okay, input prices have risen, but uh, I don't see that the ridiculous increase in the fungicide element to mean that I would be looking to be more economical with uh, my rates or, or, uh, or product choice. Yeah, because I think the worry was, well, certainly earlier in the season, is that, you know, people had spent so much money on fertiliser that they'll be look, looking to cut back elsewhere to try and claw some of that back. But, you know, a lot of people I've spoken to have said it's not the season to be cutting back fungicides, looking at how things are in the field at the moment. I, I, I'd agree with that. Uh, I, I can see that, uh, you know, there is an, an argument to be uh, more robust, uh, let's say, uh, this is the, one of the issues we have in the UK is the, the difference between, let's say, Cornwall and where you're currently uh, living in, in Worcester and through to Hereford, and then comparing it to Norfolk or Kent or, or you know, certainly the eastern side of England, is there is a, a, a difference in disease pressure. Yeah. And we can't get away from that. You know, that's a weather-driven factor, uh, you know, that the... the higher humidity, the increased level of, of uh, uh, rainfall, uh, all adds to the pressure of our number one disease, which will be septoria triticae. And, and therefore, um, I may talk completely differently to a farmer in Cornwall than I may talk to a farmer in, uh, let's say, Norfolk or North Norfolk uh, about uh, uh, rates of product uh, that, it, that are to be used. Um, and I, I think, you know, if we look back at last year with the figures that BASF released for the average rate of usage for Revista, their new fungicide as of last year, was about 0.8. Uh, and uh, when you consider the recommended rate is, uh, I think it's about uh, 1.5 is the full uh, rate of it, um, might be 1.25, but it's, it's in that range. I think you'll find more growers this time will see that their average rate of usage is higher. Um, and that's all a risk and reward assessment that each grower uh, has to take on board. As I say, if I'm in, in Cornwall, I'm certainly going to be at 1.25 of the, the new range of products that are out there. Um, I might only be a litre in Kent or Norfolk. But nevertheless, I, I, I can see that I'd be above what was uh, the, the average usage rate of last year, according to BASF. And I saw an interesting debate recently um, about cutting back fungicides and kind of how do we define cutting back? Is it reducing our rate, disregarding certain timings, um, maybe not using quite so many chemicals in the mix? So what, what's it, your take on it? It is, and I think the other thing we will throw in there is that the nitrogen price and the nitrogen availability uh, may mean that growers on average are using less. 
Um, and I think we can accept that that will be the case because I don't believe that there will be enough uh, nitrogen in the marketplace for everybody to get what they want. Uh, and that in itself um, will lead to lower uh, disease pressure uh, that's out there. It doesn't eliminate it. Um, I, I, I think that's a bit of a misnomer. Uh, if you've got something like yellow rust and you're putting on over 125 kilos of it and that will comfortably survive uh, there. We're not talking about disease not being present because of the lower end level, but we might be talking about uh, uh, situations where the conditions are not as conducive for development later. So you've got to balance that in with uh, your your you know your product uh, recommended rate that you choose to go with. So again, you know I, I know in, in in the sort of uh, Hereford area and uh, uh, down to Rose, Rosemond and the sector there where the conditions can be very conducive for septoria development. There is very little scope, I don't think, to, to cut your rates of, of the prime fungicides uh, that you're going to be using there. Um, again, uh, that variation can be different on the east where I am in the north. Uh, our problem will be longevity of season. Uh, we, we start early and we finish late. So we have to balance uh, a longer period of coverage, uh, not necessarily a, a, a higher um, disease uh, risk. So they, they, they contrast in some ways, and, and the problem that we have further north is finishing the crop, as in the, the, you know, the heat units and the temperature to actually uh, ensure that the crop dies. Um, ine inevitably mean there are longer days before we get to harvest time. And on that, last season was the first without CTL. Um, we saw some issues with late septoria. Are, are there any kind of learnings you think we can take from last season into this season? I think there are. Uh, firstly, uh, with the uh, arrival of Revistar and the arrival of Univoc uh, this year from uh, Corteva, uh, we have two very active septoria products there. And I think uh, what we will see with those is certainly uh, an improved performance uh, in terms of curative activity. Um, I don't think I want to be relying uh, solely on that, but they are good actives there. And uh, with Syngenta's adepidin arriving as well, we, we appear to, at the moment to have some very good curative products um, that are there. So the debate always comes uh, after everybody's had a, a long period of usage with glofalanil is is a multi-site and essential part of the program and again i'd highlight if i'm in the western part of the country and i've got a variety that has a septoria rating of around six i'd be very keen to include uh, some fault in that program where i know my rainfall is high my disease level is uh, the risk is high i've got a, a variety that's more prone uh, and, and following the cougar situation with some of the varieties last year uh, we've we've had more that have now slipped into that five to six category that there's the ones that i would i would be looking to use a multi-site in the downside with uh, uh, the fall pet uh, product in, in my opinion is that most growers have been using it as a price point. So they've been tending to use only a litre because a litre came out at a very similar 
uh, slightly more than Clothalanil. Um, I'll be honest, it was more than Clothalanil, but it was it was a reasonable bet. To, to me, it's quite clear that to get the best out of four pet, you need a higher rate, you need to be over a litre, and you need to go twice. So it's not a, a small increase in cost, it's a quite a larger increase in cost. So I'd want to be justifying that, and where I can justify it, I can see on those varieties with the weaker Septoria resistance rating and in the West. If I move over to the East, then I'm more likely to think about putting more of my more active product on than necessarily running straight into Volpet. So if you ask me uh, if I'm uh, in Lincolnshire or in Norfolk or Cambridgeshire, uh, I, I think spending an extra 10 to 15 pounds on more of the more active chemistry, I think that's probably the best way of spending your money on that part of the country. But um, I, I know lots of people have their own opinion on that, but uh, I, I see that as slightly more spend with the more active product being the better on the eastern side. But I think on the western side where we've got more uh, higher risk uh, and you've got a variety that's more prone, then you're looking at including Folpet in, uh, in your spray programme. Yeah, okay. And in our last episode, um, we were looking at um, nitrogen and um, we touched on kind of biological novel product that can kind of help nitrogen uptake. I just wondered if you've done anything with any biological products that claim to, you know, help with managing disease or crop health or anything like that. We're on on the start of a long journey with the biologicals uh, uh, as I see it currently. And uh, the first thing I would say straight out there is the performance is inconsistent. Mm. And uh, we've been growing up in the last 30 to 40 years with we've had products arrive that are, are improvements or better and growers can see an immediate return. Many of these are, as I, as I said before, variable in their, in their response and, and where it goes. I know uh, if you put restrictions in on what you can do to the crops, so basically let's say you're not going to put a fungicide on and you're going to have lower nitrogen, then uh, I've seen and uh, these products and uh, done trial work with these products where we can get responses. The, the, the trouble is when you start putting higher levels of nitrogen on and you use a full fungicide program, it's, it's a lot more difficult to see that there is any additional benefit from them. Okay. So, so, so that is a dilemma I, I, I've got. Um, looking forward next year where nitrogen may be unavailable, let alone price, let's not even go there, um, then again you may be looking at some of these products uh, as being advantageous that's to get there. And I think going forward, certainly the visitor type of products where you're stimulating a host defence uh, against disease uh, could be uh, the way we, we move forward with early season applications. So uh, T0 stroke, T1 sort of timing, I can see that they maybe have a role to play in there. But we are really at the start of this, this journey and you can listen to people who've studied them for forever and they say, no, we're not at the start. But the reality of it is in field, mm. where there are so many variables, 
we are on the start of, of this journey of understanding biologicals. So for me, as, as an agronomist, uh, advising my growers, um, I will be steering away from them and using the tools I know that work in my hand. And if you to force me into a position where you say, well, what would you do or where would you see them? I, I think the spring crops are the most likely to see some sort of element of response. Um, why do I say that? A very short growing period, not much time for the plant to recover or make up on things that it, 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 it missed out on. When you've got autumn cereals, you've got a long period of time when the, the, the plant can adopt or the, the floor, it can access the flora and fauna within the soil, the rhizosphere. It, it, it's a long time where the plant can try to get all of the things it needs. In spring, you've got such a short, concentrated period where any sort of handicap, uh, you know, slightly firm seed beds, cloddy seed beds, slow germination, you know, that may be where I could see maybe a, a, a positive role for them to see quicker. Um, so uh, as as we speak now, I, I'm not uh, going to be in the front line of using them. Uh, I, I don't see them providing me a consistent economic return uh, to justify that. Um, I may, you ring me up next year and we have this conversation, <laughs> it may be completely different. Uh, but hey, that's that's life, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, you never know what's around the corner, but it no. might not be the season to be spending extra yep. money and trying new things. Yeah. Okay, that's brilliant. Thanks, Patrick. Well, I hope it gives people uh, an insight in, into, uh, you know, where where we are, uh, the season, I think, with the uh, commodity prices where they currently are and the potential of the crop out there, because the potential is really good at the moment. Um, we know that we're still reliant on sun and sunlight and in, uh, in, its interception in the key months uh, from May to uh, harvest, uh, but at the moment we've we've built the foundations of the house, and I, I wouldn't want to throw away any opportunity by trying to be too economical with my inputs. Thank you. And now to welcome my next guest on today's episode, Dr. Aoife O'Driscoll, Senior Specialist in Crop Protection and Agronomy at NIAB, is going to talk to us a bit about how to manage varieties this season, as well as the growing interest in wheat blends. Hi Alice. Hi Aoife, it's great to have you on the podcast. But I wanted to chat a bit about um, varieties and genetics in our disease management, both this season and also looking ahead to the future a bit. Obviously last season there were some real issues with septoria in some varieties with cougar parentage. Is this something that's likely to develop um, more this season? Yeah, I, I think first of all, um, last year was a very stark lesson for um, a lot of us in terms of kind of risk management and um, how different people perceive risk and how different people manage it um, uh, through various cropping practices. Um, I think secondly, it was it was a bit of a wake up call uh, for some parts of the country um, where we'd probably forgotten what a what a bad disease year can look like. Um, I've got a bit of a soft spot for septoria, but it really is the most fantastically adaptable pathogen um, and if you give it the right conditions um, I think what, what we've shown last year is that it really will um, just rip you through your crop 
um, it's really adaptable. Um, it's really what we call kind of um, plastic, so it can it can change and uh, manipulate its its genetics um, according to the season. Um, and yeah, we we definitely have um, things to look out for for the for the coming year. Um, I think in terms of uh, a misconception that was talked about a lot last year was varieties breaking down um, and also fungicides not working, which are two separate issues. But um, what it comes back to really is that the variety didn't really break down. Um, the varieties bred to be consistent across years. Um, and same with the fungicides, you know, they're, 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 they're consistent across years. What did happen was that the pathogen adapted. So it adapted in terms of its virulence. So we know that from, from COVID this year, we understand what virulence is a lot more. Um, so it became more, the, the cougar isolates became more virulent um, on varieties of cougar in their parentage, which means that it, the, the pathogen basically learned to overcome the resistance. The variety didn't break down. The pathogen changed and it learns to overcome um, uh, the varietal resistance. Yeah, I think COVID's taught us all a lot more about diseases. That's uh, one thing that's come <laughs> out of it. And yellow rust ratings have also taken a bit of a knocking too. Um, and on top of that, it's the first season without epoxyconazole. So in light of that, what approach should we be taking in terms of um, fungicide programmes for varieties based on their resistance ratings? and potentially cutting back applications, but still protecting that built-in genetic resistance? So a couple of things there. Um, uh, this year, so HDB have put out um, uh, a one-year rating as well as a, a three-year rating for Septoria in particular. Um, the NIAP strategies, we have strategy documents, um, and those strategy documents for fungicide strategies will be based on the, the one-year rating. Um, so when you're designing your, your programs and you're looking at your varietal resistance rating, we'll be using the one-year rating, but also taking into account all of the other factors um, uh, and decisions you would make around um, designing your programs. I would say um, if you are looking at um, at your fungicide programs this year and, and what to do, you know, same as always, use all of the tools that are available to you. So looking at the weather um, before you do your T1s and your T2s, um, and also two weeks after application to see what's what's coming ahead. Um, looking at the, there are a number of tools available to you now around um, predicting and quantifying latent disease um, through through various sources. So you can find out how much latent disease is, is present in your crop. Um, using your own local knowledge um, of what works best for you. And, and I suppose a key lesson from last year as well was don't rely too much on what your neighbour is doing, um, or the, the guy on Twitter is doing. You know, really um, look at what's look at what's going on in your field, and you should be out there. You know, doing leaf dissections um, from April onwards, looking at um, and trying to match what's in front of you, matching your spray and your fungicide strategies to what's actually in front of you, um, rather than what the bloke on social media um, or, or your neighbour over the road is doing. Um, I think this is definitely something we learned a lot from last year. Yeah. <laughs> Another thing a lot of growers are now trying is variety blends. Um, I think in Denmark, something like 20% of the wheat area is now grown as a mixture. Um, But how exactly do these blends work in helping to manage disease? The first thing to say there is that, you know, um, mixing di- mixing and diversity in everything that we do um, is, is nearly always a good idea. So we practice crop rotation and we mix and sequence fungicides and herbicides to, to manage disease 
So why would you not mix varieties as well? Um, and this is where the, the blends come in. Um, in terms of disease management, the way they basically work is by making it really hard for the pathogen or the disease to find its way into the crop. So just like any other disease, um, if you've got a, a homogenous population of a, of a single um, variety and the septoria or the rust comes in, it's just going to sweep through. Um, it's got nothing there to kind of act as a, as a barrier or um, or a, a way to kind of stop it um, getting through the crop. Um, but if you've got a, a mixture uh, of varieties, either in a blend or as a mixture of varieties across the farm, um, the, the pathogen basically gets really confused. So it gets into the into the blend and it's trying to go for one variety and maybe it manages to get in, maybe it doesn't. Then it goes for another variety um, and it, it just gets confused. There's too many resistance genes and too many factors going on there in the blend um, for it to, to, to make its way through as rapidly as it would do um, in, a, in a straight variety. And that's the basic concept of blends. Um, you'll hear things around um, disruptive selection and dilution and all these things. But all you're basically doing in terms of disease management is making it really hard for the, for the uh, pathogen to, to make its way through the crop with the blend. Like, what is the actual purpose of a blend? Are you trying to reduce the amount of disease in your crop? Are you trying to potentially get a higher yield or just add more diversity? Yeah, so that's another question that comes back to us a lot is um, what do you think about blends? And the first question we always ask is what are you trying to achieve? Um, and for some people it's about increasing um, increasing resilience and um, kind of ensuring security. For some people it's about having diversity in their parentage. For some people it's about reducing fungicides completely um, and trying to at least eliminate a spray out of their program. So whatever you're trying to achieve, that's the thing you have to start with. So I am growing a blend because I want to do X, Y, and Z. And if you start from there and then work back, um, that will help you, I think, um, decide on, on how you choose your blend. If it's for parental diversity um, or whether it's for, for quality, for example, um, that will all come into play. But you have to start right at the beginning to figure out what you're trying to achieve with this. I suppose for my I, you know, I'm a pathologist by trade, so I'm more interested in trying to reduce pests and diseases. So I would be um, looking at um, uh, parental diversity. I'd be looking at things like blossomage. So if I'm growing a four-way blend, I want um, varieties in there that will um, have different uh, resistances there to, to blossomage. Um, and if I'm trying to reduce my fungicide inputs, I would be looking at untreated yields. Um, and yeah, lots of the, all those factors have to come in at the very, very beginning when you're deciding what you want to do. Um, but it's not the same for everyone. Um, and nor should it, should, it shouldn't be. Um, you've got, everyone's, everyone's different and they all have um, um, different ways of farming. So there is no one size fits all. Yeah, it's very much dependent on the farm. And when you're selecting a blend, say somebody thinks, oh, this might be something for us to try on our farm, what what would make up a good blend? How many varieties would you want in there? Um, would you be looking at varieties with high resistance, a mix of resistance ratings? Um, I suppose what makes a good blend is, is really the million-dollar question, but there are definitely a few key features to look out for. Um, so depending on what you're interested in, I would say minimum four varieties. Um, but we do have a trial this year with um, Theodore and Costello. So it's a two, two-way blend, um, and Theodore in there for the really good disease resistance and Costello in there for the spec weight. So if you, if you put the two together, um, what impact does it have both on, on, on disease um, and also on the, the quality aspect? And then we've also got a um, three-way uh, soft blend as well to look at. 
Um, I suppose the, the main characteristic I would be interested in, um, besides kind of disease and, and parentage, would be similar maturities. Yeah. Um, similar maturities is really important, both from a harvesting point of view, so you can get a good sample, but also leaf layer emergence, um, especially if you're, um, if you're applying fungicides and you're trying to target leaf layers. And that was uh, where a lot of people got caught out last year was um, was leaf layer emergence was really off. So if you've got a blend, um, that is that is going to be something to really take into consideration. Um, so that would probably be my number one priority after um, after kind of disease resistance um, and diversity in parentage. Um, good untreated yields um, is another one. So looking at the recommended list and the untreated yield data, similar straw stiffness and similar enough straw height um again i think diehard fans of blends um are also the people who kind of embrace that you don't need perfect perfectly um you know level crops um a bit of unevenness is kind of kind of tolerated um if you're if you're growing blends yeah i was speaking to one farmer um and he was growing a blend he said that he finds obviously maturity is a very important um but he found that they ended up kind of evening out quite a lot, the, the yeah. blend. Is that something that you find? Yeah, definitely. Um, and um, I don't think anyone really has blends completely figured out. We, we never will have it completely figured out. But you do learn from experience um, and just growing them and, and seeing what works. But, yeah, they do they do tend to even out. Um, and that could be to do with things like shading, um, you know, and more sunlight. Lots of different factors um, could play a role in, in that one. But it's all down to experience. And, um, you know, people. some people have been doing it for 20 years and they're still learning. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, it's, it's down to experience. Um, and then I suppose the only final thing I would say is to look outside the RL a little bit as well. Um, so there are some really good varieties out there, like say Nelson and Parkin, um, which didn't make the recommended list, but they're really solid varieties um, and would be a great addition to either a variety portfolio or, or a blend. Yeah. KHDB, they've got a um, variety blend tool now for growers to... They do. Yeah, it's bad. It's really, really useful. And you can select based on... So the two things people are interested in are uh, looking for traits and also in parentage. So, um, yeah, you can select your blend um, based on what you're looking for, be it kind of more to do with uh, quality and and traits or um, diversity in parentage. And it goes back all the way to, like, great, great, great grandparents. You can really go back quite far with that. And for those that are trying a blend this season, when they're thinking about a fungicide program, what sort of approach should they take? Would they be looking to protect the most susceptible variety or the most resistant? How would you kind of adapt that to a blended crop? Yeah, we've had that argument um, quite a bit over the last year. Um, and one of the arguments for uh, for against growing a blend or growing a mixture of varieties across the farm is that it's really difficult to time points that application um, because obviously people want to get around the farm and they want to get on with their work but actually I see it as more giving you a bit of flexibility in your timing um, so if, if you can especially like last year it was really difficult to get on um, if you have the opportunity to have a, a slightly longer um, spray window then that could be a real um, advantage with, with growing blends in the future and then in terms of just basic agronomy you would always 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 come back to matching your spray to what's in front of you so it, are you out there in April when you're thinking about your T1s are you dissecting are you looking at leaf layer emergence are you looking at the weather kind of 
um, um, before and then after um, and timing. So timing is always more important than product choice. Whatever your product choice, a well-timed T1 and a well-timed T1 is really 375% out will get you out of a lot of holes. Um, so if you are growing a blend and you're thinking about your fungicide programs for this year, I would say um, just go back to basic agronomy and, and go back to matching what's in front of you and taking into consideration all the things that you would normally do um, with your varieties. Great stuff. Thank you, Aoife. Farming is undergoing a huge change and no one's really sure what the future holds, other than we need to build resilience and profitability into our farming practices. Earning up to £800 a hectare from your less productive land is an option with Miscanthus. The contracts are up to 15 years in fixed price, offering that extra security and one less unknown. You can have a crop that improves soil and water health whilst providing habitat and shelter for animals, increasing your organic matter and actually assisting food production by allowing you to concentrate on the more productive land. The biomass that grows every year is used to produce carbon-neutral electricity, while the incredible rhizome network underground is carbon-negative, drawing on average 2.35 tonnes of CO2 per hectare per year. You can now plant 30 hectares for roughly £1,600 in year one, thanks to our amazing partners at Oxbury, the Agricultural Bank. Start growing innovation. Visit terravesta.com. And now moving away from genetics and turning towards developments in technology, Bayer Crop Science has been working on rapid disease detection tests for cereal crops, which can detect latent disease on leaf samples before they become visible. Now here with me to explain more is Greg Hanna, who's market development agronomist for Bayer. So Greg, when I first heard about Bayer's qPCR testing a few years ago it was a fairly unknown concept to me but sadly we've all become experts in PCR testing these days um but how does crop check work in a crop scenario so essentially what you do is you go out and um, sample leaves a, a given sort of leaf layer that you um, sort of think is relevant to the uh, fungicide application that you're you're planning so for example if you were coming up to your uh, T2 application, um, we'd say that effectively leaf one as it emerges should be coming through clean and be a, sort of a, a, a low risk low risk leaf. So um, what we'd advise is really sampling, focusing in on leaf two and trying to work out if there's um, any sort of latent uh, disease pressure in that leaf. So you'd walk the field, you know, in, in the sort of typical way as if you were um, uh, were doing sort of normally agronomically. Uh, take your um, leaf samples as you go across the fields and the standard W pattern and what have you to, to get a good representation. And then those leaves get uh, sent off uh, with CropCheck um, to NIAB, who then do uh, the rapid qPCR testing. And then sort of in a, a 24-hour time frame, then you should get uh, an email ping back with uh, a result telling you about uh, how much disease really is sat in that leaf level of the crop. Okay. And how much kind of forward insight does that give you into the crop's disease status? So when you look at the sort of latency period, this, this can vary depending on sort of the environmental conditions. Uh, principally temperature for something like septoria is, is one of the main drivers in how quickly it cycles. So what you could be detecting is disease that may appear as a visual symptom in, in something like 14 to 28 days time. So it is sort of getting you ahead of the, the curve a little bit. But I think crucially as well, you're able to detect disease that you can still 
do something to remediate. If you go into a crop and then you see that you you say, for example, got an active infection on leaf two, really you're you're really going to struggle um, to get on top of the infection on that leaf layer at that point. Um, you know, the fung- there's no fungicide out there that's got that level of remediation power or, or kickback to it. So it really does give you that sort of last last sense check in the field and that ability. I guess if you pick something up in terms of an early stage infection. Um, you might begin to sort of reevaluate what you're putting on in terms of the program, um, in terms of active ingredients, rates, um, you know, that, that becomes a bigger conversation over the specific disease and the specifics of the crop. But it, it gives you that opportunity, really. And it's early days still. Um, but what, what diseases can you detect so far? So, I mean, theoretically, we can we can look at anything. The main um, sort of part of the process that you have to develop is the the DNA primers um, to allow for the the qPCR part of the test um, to go ahead so um, I mean currently we are um, you know, on the serial side looking at tests for uh, septoria uh, yellow rust uh, rhincosporium uh, and net blotch um, and sort of internally we are sort of um, continuing research around ramularia and barley as well quite a package of diseases then so you said this isn't quite commercially available yet, but throughout the season, how does this work in practice? So you're walking your crops. How how soon before a um, you know a timing would you want to be looking at your leaves, and also kind of how many times throughout the season? Sure. So I guess the first part is you know, when when would you sort of target taking these samples and really. Um, you want to be as close to your your spray timing or, or you know, the decision point for your spray timing as possible because it is essentially a snapshot in time and you know every every hour or, or day that goes by after that test you know it could be a change in conditions or whatnot that then is further influencing what happens with the disease so it, it's I suppose a balancing act between um, really sort of getting getting the test off getting the result back, making a decision, and then going out with a sprayer um, based on that. So really, in practical terms, a, a couple of days before you plan to spray, really, is, is probably what's going to work in the real world. Um, just to send to check, okay, you've got in your head, this is what we're planning to put on the field. Um, is there anything that you know we're not seeing, but we should be aware of, really? That's that's what you're trying to send to check and question. Um Another way to sort of look at it would be maybe in sort of early early part of the season, maybe coming up to T noughts and and so on. Um, you could begin to look at if there are any um, fields that might need to be prioritised for something like a T naught. You could uh, do a test. I mean, we know um, variety resistance ratings for diseases can you know be something that seems to break down potentially one year to the next now um it could certainly help help you see something coming ahead of the curve there a little bit you know if you were expecting your variety to be say highly resistant against yellow rust or something and then actually you find that you you've got some uh, latent infection of yellow rust in there you'd want to make sure that you're you're putting actives and so on in that are gonna uh, gonna help you in that scenario and then those results, how representative a sample would they be? Would you need to be sending leaves off for every field um, or, you know, every farm maybe that you've got or every variety? How how does that work? So that's a good question, really. Um, 
what we have to remember is that uh, when we're doing um, one of these samplings, what we're actually sampling is is one leaf layer at a given uh, point in time. So when you're looking to sort of take a bearing on the on the state of disease across um, a larger area, um, it's it's quite difficult to extrapolate. So that's why we'd say to be quite targeted in terms of what leaf layer um, you you select in the first instance, making sure that it's a leaf layer that's relevant to your next fungicide application. So, for example, looking at leaf two um, ahead of making your uh, T2 fungicide input decisions in winter wheat, for example. Um, what you certainly can't begin to do is to take that result and then use it to, to give a an overbearing on what the states of disease is in the, in the leaf layers, either above or below the leaf that you've sampled. And then you certainly then can't begin to say, well, um, you know, we've sampled this one field. That one field is then not going to represent, you know, um, many hectares of, of even if it's the same variety uh, that are drilled across um, across the, the whole farm. Um, really, we'd advocate, you know, doing a field by field sampling basis because then you're going to have other variables like soil type, uh, crop stand density, uh, fertilizer inputs and so on that are still not going to necessarily be uniform field to field that might still have a bearing on uh, on the disease risk. Yeah. In terms of the results then, um, you know, once a grower has received their result that says they have a certain level of disease within their crop, how can they then put that into you know, their decision-making? So what we've um, sort of begun developing is really a, a categorisation um, of the results. So it will, for Septoria, for example, fall into one of um, three categories. So the first being um, that there's sort of very, very low or, or sort of limited limited detection levels of disease in the sample that's been sent in. Um, and so with that, we'd be sort of advocating, well, you know, stick with plan A, but if... You know, potentially that's that's the scenario with a with a good chat with your agronomist and understanding you know all the other risk factors um, that are relevant to the crop, particularly uh, variety, uh, drilling dates, and so on. That's where you know you could begin to have the conversation of is this the correct level of input? Is there a scope to scale back and make a saving? But I can't I can't reiterate enough. This this then sort of comes back to individuals attitudes to risk and and you know what the crop is uh is going towards as an end market you know there's a there's so many factors going into any individual crop you can't just say okay for example you've got a green a green light with that low result you know absolutely cut back that's that's not where we are and, and the base point really should be to stay as as you were and as you planned with that uh fungicide um, so sort of the next category up then is sort of an amber amber rating, and this sort of really indicates that you've got um, early stage infection occurring. But in this sort of stage of infection, this is where we sort of see that you've got the early sort of uh, spread of mycelium from the, the fungal spores. Um, sort of, so a lot of the fungal activity is still on the surface of the leaf and not necessarily moving within it so much at this point. So fungicides are still going to be very, very effective at this point, um, certainly from a contact perspective. And then finally, you sort of move into um, the more sort of established latent infection. And this is where you're then going to be more reliant on um, systemic based chemistry to try and um, try and attack that infection because you've effectively got high high levels of um, fungal material within the leaf structure. So obviously, that's, that's more difficult to access uh, with any fungicide spray. 
Um, and ultimately, um, that's that's then depending on how far advanced that is. Um, that's going to lead to sort of visual symptoms fairly fairly rapidly potentially as well. So it's it's not a black and white answer. It's very much a kind of decision support tool rather than a decision maker. Precisely, that's exactly what it is. It's about adding a new piece of information to the conversation of how do we manage this crop. It's it's not a single tool to use out of context at all. You know, it, it needs to be considered with all the other agronomic factors. Yeah, and a lot of our listeners will be wanting to know, one, if this is going to save them money, and two, how much it costs. So currently, Bayer aren't charging anything for the test. Uh, we have... Uh, sort of a limited number of samples that we offer for free online and uh, that online sampling opens on the 1st of March so you can go to our website and um, sign up for a, for a kit pretty much on a, on a first come first serve basis there um, and in terms of what what those tests can be used for um, that's essentially up to up to the person um, requesting the kit, but there, there will be sort of a little, a few, a few suggested uses and so on, like comparing two varieties on a farm and so on. Um, and you can test for uh, septoria, yellow rust, uh, in sept, um, in wheat, sorry, uh, and then look at uh, rinko and net blotch in barley. And do you think? Once it's refined in the future, this might become part of the the process when you're making decisions when it comes to crop protection. Yeah, I, I think a lot of people are showing a lot of interest in it, and I think most most people see it's got sort of good good potential when it's applied um, correctly. So yeah, it's certainly it's it's almost you could view it as that that final check in a way of you know this is where where I think I'm going with my my fungicide recommendation. Um, you know, this sort of helps you check if I missed something or if you're looking at sort of workload on farm and so on, you know, does it help you prioritise one field um, over another based on what, what you're seeing come through in the in the disease readings? Um, yeah, so I think absolutely, I guess, like anything, the, the price point may also determine its uh, success and so on. But yeah. um, and, and then I think it's got a broader remit feeding into further technology, really. Um, so where you start to um, use it to, to sense check and, and add an extra data point into sort of disease forecasting models and, and that side of things and to help then sort of come with uh, potentially further advice around you know, timing of applications and, and so on um, and more factors like that. And is there any kind of database available that Bayer obviously have their trials plots and it will they'll have information about you know what kind of pressure they're experiencing in certain parts of the country is there any way that that information might become like a kind of map for people to yeah. so um effectively i think we uh, we ran it last year it was a sort of a piece of work called the national snapshot and that's where um they are sort of uh, technical um, agronomists across the country um have a, a number of monitor farms that they sample on a, a weekly basis um, and that sort of then allows us to sort of plot the plot the development of uh, the disease through the season uh, in in those crops and understand the relationship from in terms of when you first get a qPCR positive result and then look at sort of the latency period um, across different varieties um, to when you then start seeing foliar symptoms in those leaf levels that are sampled um, and all that will again be sort of presented um, online for people to to look at in sort of an interactive um, interactive tool this year okay great 
And this um, winter, compared to last winter, probably couldn't have been much different. It's been so warm and dry here. Last winter was pretty cold and quite wet again. Um, but are there any learnings from last season that you think we could potentially carry into this season? And also, you've already started doing some qPCR tests on leaves. What kind of things are you seeing at the moment? Yeah. So, I mean, the first first part is um, really looking at the, I guess, the, the key learnings. And um, one one thing that, that bore out incredibly well when we had uh, this uh, crop check data, uh, when we looked in, through the analysis from last year, is that we, um, we really saw the impact of that cold spell that we had um, in April. Yeah. And that actually, it reiterated um, how important temperature is to driving um, the speed of, of disease development. And it, it may seem obvious, but, um, you know, many of us were thinking, oh, you know, as soon as the rain started in May, oh, you know, the disease pressure is going to ramp up really quickly. But it did take really until the end of May to really get into its stride. And that was essentially when you look back and, and plot, uh, plot everything out against the weather data and so on, it, it was because the temperature wasn't there to drive the, the cycling as quickly as we, we thought it may have. Um, so, that, that then sort of feeds into, well, last year we saw, you know, there were low disease levels around, uh, particularly sort of around the, the T1 timings, and um, people were making decisions um, to cut back. But I suppose what it, what it, one of the big learnings from um, last year could be that, you know, you can't, no one's got that, that crystal ball to predict the future, what the weather conditions are going to turn like and so on. And, um, yeah, you, you've still got to... Um, look at all all the factors um, that you can consider, and if if you've got a, a, a variety that's um, you know not got a great resistance rating against a particular disease, you, you've still got to take that line really to to protect it in in most circumstances. Um, you know, at this point when you're making that decision, you've already invested quite a lot into that crop. Um, you know, if you've got to, I suppose look at what your what your potential savings are and what your personal attitude is to that to that risk um yeah so it's uh, it's a tricky one but i think last year um taught taught us that um yeah you can't you can't take what's going on right now as a prediction of of the future yeah. and um you know we did see um certainly in march there was um certainly plenty of positive pings on the on the qpcr side of things um but it basically just because of the cold conditions took its time to get going but as we well know it, it certainly got there last year yeah um in terms of this year uh we're again we're sort of getting some uh, a fair amount of uh septoria um in our in our national snapshot at the moment it's um yeah it's it's not really too concerning at this point in honesty um you know so a lot of these crops that we're we're monitoring uh, are early drilled and, and potentially high risk uh, varieties anyway what it's really showing us is that there's there's disease potential there and i would say you know it, it just reiterates that um not not to be complacent in terms of what uh, what you're planning with um any fungicide um applications at this point moving forward into the spring but again things things will almost certainly change between now and, and T0, T1 and T2 and so it's a case of you know as always monitoring the situation trying to look as head as best you can with weather forecasts and, and also sort of knowing your own your own farm your own uh, your own fields and, and how things typically develop for you so yeah 
And now it's time for my final speaker, who is dialing in all the way from Sunny, California. And this is something very different. Ashish Malik is CEO of B Vectoring Technologies, which is a novel technology that he has developed, which uses bees to apply biofungicides. And he starts off with telling me a bit more about the technology. B Vectoring Technology, or, or BVT, is a technology that we developed. Uh, it actually came out of um, an academic setting in the late 90s. But then we took it from a, a purely research perspective into a commercial tool that farmers are using today, um, you know, 2015 onwards. And what we do with the, uh, what BBT does is we've got specialized dispensers that work with commercial bees. These are bees that are used by farmers for pollination of their crops. So they might be honeybees, they might be bumblebees. And through these specialized dispensers, uh, biological crop protection products are delivered to the crops through the flower in a very targeted way. And the great thing about our system is it's an extremely sustainable, environmentally responsible way to deliver these crop protection products because you only use very small quantities of the control agent because you're targeting the crop directly at the flower. You're not, you know, compared to traditional spraying technology where a lot of only one or two percent of what you spray actually hits the, the plant or the flower. A hundred percent of what the bees are delivering goes to the flower. So it's an extremely precise and targeted way to deliver plant protection products. And is this being used commercially already? It is. It is being used commercially in the United States. So what we have is... So you have to think about the biological control agent. So that is a, uh, a biopesticide. So it does require registrations. Mm -hmm. So we got registration of our own microbial product back in 2019 with the United States uh, EPA, our regulatory agency here in the US. Uh, so we have been selling uh, our system with our biofungicide commercially since uh, basically the 2020 season. But then we've also started, you know, geographic expansions. We're looking at our submission into the European Union this year, Canada, Mexico, uh, Peru, even. Um, so we're 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 commercial in the U.S. and we're in the process to start the development in other jurisdictions also. And what kind of crops are you currently working with, and what has uptake and kind of interest from? your farmers been because this is like totally different to what we kind of used to dealing with in terms of disease control it is different and you know my, my background alice is I've, I've worked in the crop protection industry for close to close to 20 years now and i've worked at the two biggest companies in the space syngenta and bear crop science and um this is definitely a, an innovation that's uh, that's that's garnering a lot of interest. Yeah. Uh, but it's still it's still new and it's in its kind of journey. Let's say our initial focus, just because we had to start someplace, was in the berry crops. So uh, we are selling our system primarily to blueberry growers, strawberry growers. We're we're pursuing demonstrations, a large scale, hopefully large scale demonstrations. With in blackberries and raspberries, so that's that crop group. Uh, but then we started working on on cherries, on stone fruit. 
We've done, by the way, done a lot of work on sunflowers, um, and we will be doing on canola seed production and, and oil seed seed production. Um, but then the, the, the technology has a great fit also in greenhouse vegetable production. Yeah. So any any crop that's got uh, that flowers, uh, theoretically, you know, using our system where you know where bees could help pollinate the crop and deliver the crop protection product would be a great fit for us. Yeah. And does that mean that the the biofungicide has to be tailored to each crop? So we have our own biofungicide, and it's a particular strain of a ubiquitous fungus called Clonostachys rosea. And uh, we specifically chose and developed this strain because of its properties to be a very quick colonizer of plant tissue. It's a beneficial fungus and it colonizes the plant tissue and helps it fight therefore disease and pathogens but our system the bee delivery could be used to deliver any bee safe product theoretically even a chemical provided it's bee safe any kind of a, a crop protection product that 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 is targeted that is targeting a disease or a pest issue around the flowering time right so we're not this is not a system that you could use to, for example, to fight nematodes or soil disease, because obviously yeah. bees don't fit down there. But, but you know, uh, fire blight or winia, bacterial diseases that come through the flower, or flower thrips and ligus and other insects that reside around the flower that's part of the life cycle, or certainly botrytis sclerotinia, are all great, um, you know, target pests that we can manage through our system. So then our job as BVT is to find what's the best biological control agent that we could use and develop that for, for, for delivery. So we're starting with our biofungicide, our CR7, Clonostachys rosea. But in Europe, we've already announced a relationship with, um, uh, with, a, with a company, CBC BioGuard, that's got a Bavaria bassiana that's being used for flower thrips and vegetable crops. We're going to adapt that strain for bee delivery, uh, and we're evaluating other third-party products that could be suitable for our delivery systems. So the idea is that we would control multiple pests through our our, our um, dispenser systems. Okay. So for crops like potatoes or beans or, well, you mentioned canola or seed rape that are grown in the UK, there could be potential for this kind of technology to be used there. I would say, I mean, for for flowering crops, yes. So the the way we kind of turn this around to some of the arable crops, I mean, so, so canola, yes. Uh, uh, fruits, yes. Uh, for potatoes, what we're going to explore is actually putting our product on as a seed piece treatment to the potato before it's planted. Okay. So we're not using the bees there, but then you're getting into more traditional applications. That's a slightly longer term project for us. But, but those are ways that we could get into the arable crops as well, because we have a very, very good biological fungicide uh, in our portfolio. Okay. When it comes to the actual service for farmers, I just want to kind of get an idea of how it would work. So say I'm a cherry grower, for example, and I wanted yeah. to try this technology, would I, who would I approach? Would I approach like a beekeeper or do you have like your own bees? How does it all kind of work? 
Yeah, no, you would you would approach it. We we do not have our own bees, so we partner with the beekeepers. So we would partner with the beekeeper that the grower already has a relationship with, and um, and and through that partnership, we would attach our dispenser systems to those same beehives at the beginning of the of the season of the blooming season. Uh, but what happens during that bloom period is is what's very interesting. So. The bees are delivering small targeted quantities of the biological control agent on a daily basis. So unlike traditional spraying, where the farmer may spray once or maybe twice during that period, you're getting a fresh inoculum on a daily basis, which means that any new flower that might bloom is going to get protected versus you know, a, a, a periodic spray, you might miss that bloom until you get the next spray event, right? Yeah. So a, a flower could potentially be, you know, vulnerable versus with the BBT system, you're getting that that plant, that flower, excuse me, protected right from the beginning. And have you done any kind of work looking at what, what additional control that actually gives versus, say, if you applied the biofungicide um as like a blanket treatment like most farmers would at the moment yeah we do so when we do our development work we will always compare you know our system against a the the grower standard and of course the grower standard depends it's different in the u.s than it might be in, in, in europe or even the uk and what we're finding is that we are always either equal or outperforming the grower standards and the reason is because of, you know, I already touched on it. You're getting that fresh inoculum on a daily basis. And then the other thing that we found is that our biological control agent, not only does it control the botrytis or the sclerotinia, but it also imparts a biostimulant effect, which helps the, the plant grow stronger and produce a higher yield. So you're getting disease control and higher yields through our system. So then would would the crops then need additional fungicide treatments as well, or is, would this be all that they need? Obviously, it probably depends on the crop and things like that. But It, it, it does. Of course, it does depend on the crop. You know, our, our product will address a lot of the fungal diseases during the bloom period, uh, but the farmer may have to spray for a late-season foliar disease, <laughs> or they might have to do a you know a drip or uh, irrigation treatment for a soil pathogen, so it doesn't eliminate a hundred percent off the fu- the sprays, but it can cut back the amount of sprays that they would have to do. Yeah. But the interesting thing is that uh, some of our a lot of our U.S. growers are actually finding that they are using our system in addition to the 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 sprays, uh, and. And the reason to do that is because they're getting more effective disease control. So our system has a different, you know, uh, mode of action. So from a resistance management perspective, it's a great tool. And because of that, you know, um, you know, steady daily inoculum delivery, it also kind of helps round out the fungicidal program to produce better disease control. Yeah. And they're getting much higher yields. So the product is paying off in terms of an ROI because at the end of the day, it's yields that that is what the farmers are looking for. Yeah. So they're using it in connection with the fungicide sprays. Yeah. 
No, it's, it's really interesting. And then this is probably the big question, but bee welfare is a very sensitive topic. We're very protective over our bees here. Should we have any concerns over this? And what are the regulatory implications for this technology? I'm sure it must be subject to incredibly strict testing, but I just don't know what the public might think about this. Yeah, you know, look, I mean, the way to answer that, there's two, two ways to answer that. One is we had to, I mean, it's a great question, by the way, right? So the, the first way I'm going to answer that is by saying that um, um, we had to do all the bee safety studies that, you know, at least at least so far the EPA has required us to do, yeah. right? Uh, we're going to go ahead and do the exact the same requirements for, for, for Europe or any other jurisdiction that might. So so the regulators not look at not only human safety, but they also look at, you know, bee safety, water, fish, everything. I mean, um, birds everything so all the mammalian safety as well so we we plat we pass with absolutely no concerns our biofungicide is as benign as you could think i mean you and i could could take spoonfuls of this without a concern so it's a very safe product by itself yeah but but the other way to answer that is just you know from a sheer practical perspective we're getting into our our third season last season our business grew by 60 50 percent compared to 2020, which was our launch year, we had 100% customer retention in the in the blueberry market, which was the, our, our launch market in Georgia, the southeast of the United States. And and the beekeepers have had no, I mean, we, we check with the beekeepers that we use, any concerns. So we're not seeing any, any real life um, concerns either. And the reality is, had there been that concern, then we wouldn't be having a business that we could be speaking about, right? So yeah. there is a little bit of that as well. Yeah, yeah, I'm sure, and but, I'm sure you know, if the beekeepers were concerned, they wouldn't agree to do it. But they're obviously very exactly, exactly. And and so what I was just going to add there is, you asked, you know, a few questions ago about do we talk to the grower? Do we talk to the beekeeper as part of the the part? And it is very much a partnership. We want to make sure that the beekeepers are. Are comfortable with this system, with this technology. So we will, if there is a beekeeper that's concerned, we will do a small demonstration with them, you know, just in a couple of highs, just to make sure that they're comfortable with how it works before we go into a several hundred acre or hectare, uh, uh, you know, field uh, study. So we want to make sure that they understand the system, how it works, and that they're comfortable with it. The, the beauty of this, however, is through the system, the farmer can reduce or, or, like I said, even eliminate some chemical pesticide sprays. And we know that some of these sprays are what do come back and cause a negative effect on, on colony health. Right. So this is an actually it's an interesting uh, um, business model where the bees can actually help themselves. And we've seen that. We've seen cases a couple and I'm not going to make a claim on it, but some beekeepers have said that their bees are healthier after they pick them up at the end of uh, a, uh, you know, a crop rotation where they're delivering the BBT product. I know that regulations on um, bioproducts in Europe and the UK can be quite tricky. I've no idea about what the regulations are on bee vectoring technology, but are you any closer to you know having this available in Europe or maybe the UK, do you think, at some point? We're, we're close in... 
uh, in Switzerland. So we started there. We've got a little R&D center there. So it made sense to to start there and, and learn a little bit about Europe, the European market. And um, there's a possibility we could be selling in, in Switzerland this year. We're in the final stages of the review. Uh, and we have talked to, you know, the EU, not the UK yet, but the EU regulators and are planning to submit actually two products. We're certainly going to submit our first product, the biofungicide, this year, and then maybe late this year or possibly early next year, the second product. So we are in discussion with the EU regulators as well. So we just have to watch this space. Thank you. That's really interesting. I think it's something that when you first hear about it, you kind of furrow your brow a bit. But when you learn more, it, it does make more sense. Yeah, and that's the reaction that we've got. You know, when you first talk to a grower, you know, when you talk to the growers about bees, I mean, they, they understand the benefit that bees bring to their crop, whether they actually pay for, you know, whether they rent hides from their beekeeper or not, that, you know, they, they may make an economic decision. You know, I'm going to pay in the U.S. They go for about 50 to 60 dollars a hive. Does it make sense for me to to do that or not, they understand that they will benefit their 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 crop. So for them to just say, okay, I understand the value that they bring from a pollination perspective, and it kind of and it just makes logical sense that why don't you use the same process? It's totally natural to deliver a bee safe biological to help my crop grow healthier. Well, there you go. Could that be the future? Let's wait and see. And that's all we've got time for for today. Um, huge thank you to my excellent panel of guests for talking us through everything from leaf layers to biofungicides. Continuing the theme of crop health, next month we'll be delving into the world of pest control and moving away from pesticides to find more novel ways to control the critters in our crops. Thank you for tuning in. Please don't forget to like, subscribe, review and get in touch if you've got any burning ideas. Catch you next time.